Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. This week on Up In Your Business, we're going to revisit Carrie McCoy's interviews with two voices that have helped shape Central Arkansas's fashion history. Anita Davis, the founder of the Essie Purse Museum in downtown Little Rock, and Connie Fales, the fashion designer and boutique owner, plus manager of the Clinton Museum Store, talking about the inaugural dress that she designed for Hillary Clinton. Anita will talk about the purse collection that started the Museum of the Divine Feminine and we'll find out how both women are impacting their community through art, culture, and something called placemaking. First up, a little bit about the beginnings for each of these women, and then we'll dive right into Anita Davis's definition of placemaking. Anita Davis is first. Born and raised in the small town of Murfreesboro, Arkansas, Anita grew up in a time of downtown communities with sidewalks and locally owned shops. So when she moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, and saw a group of old buildings in disrepair at the south end of Main Street, she got inspired to recreate a time gone by and began the decade-long revitalization of what we now call Soma, or South on Main. At the corner of 15th and Main, Anita is the landlord for the Green Corner Store, Lob Lolly Creamery, my favorite, and the nationally recognized Root Cafe. On the next corner, a block down, she lovingly constructed a sculpture garden and named it after her grandmother, Bernice Garden. And in 2013, Anita had the idea of sharing her lifelong addiction of purse collecting into yet another unique and thoroughly modern concept by opening the Essie Purse Museum with a private collection of no less than 3,000 period purses. Love that. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the shy and creative entrepreneur, Miss Anita Davis. Talk to me about your life in Murfreesboro, Arkansas. Well, um, I was born in 1946, and so by the time I was 12, uh, it was the 50s, Mm -hmm. and uh, we had three pharmacies, and we had three three grocery stores, and... um, you know that we had everything we needed we had a dairy queen by the 60s and uh, a five and dime soda fountains and um car an auto dealership yeah a so, lot of small businesses right. yes and, and just, so you could walk everywhere mm-hmm. and not that everybody did walk everywhere but you could so uh, i was sort of i guess i was getting a little training in what neighborhoods could be if they weren't the suburbs where you had houses all together and then the uh, businesses away from that, so it which was, was the rest of the which was the rest of the world. Right. We were all moving towards suburbs. Yes, yes. And you were still living in a small town, right? With small town, um, small town uh, qualities. Yes, and conveniences. Yes, and a community. I like that. Yeah. So you went to a convention a main street convention in seattle washington and found heard this term called placemaking and it resonated with you 
did you already own the property when you heard this term or did you hear this term and decide I'm going to start buying up property which came first I think I bought the property first but I was also I, I mean I had already tried to figure out what my part in uh, taking care of the earth was and so it's sort of gelled to think about my upbringing in this little bitty town and to see this area that uh, could use some goods and services for the neighborhood. And so that's kind of uh, how it played out. Goods and services. Uh-huh. Tell people what placemaking means. Well, it's... Um, I guess you would, okay, so like in 2004, I brought that property, and I've got to tell you the story about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the Bernice Building, and Bernice is my grandmother's name, and so I looked up. serendipity. I know. I looked up, and I thought, hmm, I believe this may be the one. A sign. Uh Uh-huh. And so, uh, and then in 2005, I bought the the property next to it uh, that Steve Patrick owned and he moved he bought property on down a little bit further on uh 15th street a uh, 15th in maine uh-huh oh, okay and uh so then it gave me the opportunity to build the garden and do it sustainably so that it has a drip system and all that but that's i'm getting to your question just just a yeah, minute so i'm following yeah you. okay okay so uh, uh my grandmother uh was uh, she had four children, and she really didn't get to live in one town for very long. And uh, she lived here with her sister uh, toward the end of her life, and she worked at Frankie's Cafeteria. And basically, in the south part of, this, of our world, they say uh, that's when a person never got a dinner. And it's sort of a, a, a old saying that they weren't really honored the way they probably would have been appropriate for her to be honored. Why? What do you well, mean she wasn't just, honored? Well, I mean, she never got a dinner. What do you mean like, she never got a dinner? I'm, 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 what do you mean? Is that a saying, she yes, never got a dinner? Right. What does that mean? It means that she, okay, so we like when people retire, they either give you a watch back in oh. the old days, or they give you a dinner. She never got a dinner. She <laughs> never got a dinner party, Right. basically. Yes, yes. Okay. okay. Well, that, that would be from Little Rock, we would say, never got a dinner party. Yeah, but in the South, it, they say she never got a dinner. Right. She didn't get right. a gold watch. Right. She didn't get her dinner. Right, right. So she got a garden. On Main Street. <laughs> oh, I love it. I see it now. It came together right there, Anita. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so, but that's not exactly placemaking, but it is sort of because that is a place that could be where community uh, gathers. And so uh, we had, um, there were several groups, the the Main Street uh, well, there were several people that that contributed to the sculptures. We had uh, UALR helped us so much. UA Little Rock, mm-hmm. uh, the sculpture department. Michael Warwick helped, and we had a scholarship fund. And each year we would get a new scho- uh, new sculpture, and so we'd throw a big party, and everybody could come, and it was kind of free at first. So uh, then, so that's kind of placemaking. That is when you can uh, bring people together and also you offer them things that they need. So 2007, here comes Steve LaFrance and Steve Edwards. They uh, did the Edwards Food Giant. They, you know, he, inter- he bought that mm-hmm. and, and 
improved it, I believe. And then uh, Steve LaFrance did USA Drug. So mm-hmm. we have groceries and we have drugstore. And then we have some of these quaint little things that we have in our little pocket of the world from mm-hmm. 14th uh to 15th mm-hmm. and uh i read i read placemaking the design of i read the definition uh-huh. of it the design of public spaces that reflects the character and the assets of the community i think that's perfect we'll get back to how anita davis's placemaking in the soma district of little rock arkansas includes the se purse museum but first, we want to get a little bit familiar with Connie Fails, our other guest on the show today. So I was born in Illinois, but my dad was a traveling salesman. And in the first grade, he got transferred to Arkansas. What? So I lived in Paris, Arkansas, Forest City, Arkansas, Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And then he got transferred to Missouri and then Oklahoma City. And I stayed in Little Rock. He got transferred after that. So I stayed in Little Rock. I loved Arkansas as a grown person. What's your dad sell? He worked for the Rexall Drug Company. And so, sold, so, he was a pharmaceutical rep, I guess? Uh, we could call that today, but back in the day, he was traveling all over Arkansas in his 54 Ford, going mm-hmm. to little drug stores that were, you know, in every little corner of Arkansas, tiny little towns and stuff. And it was more than just pharmaceuticals. It would be, their, he would, he their played, big thing was vitamins, plenamins, they were called. Vitamins. What were they called? Super plenamins. Oh, <laughs> learned something new every day. Never heard that one before. So you ended up going to school in Missouri. Yes. And what was your degree in? Art. So I started out studying weaving, but, um, well, I started out actually studying painting and drawing. Then I found out that they had a weaving department, which I'd never heard of. I thought, wow, I think I like that. So I moved my major to weaving. And then when I was out of school, I was still weaving, and I moved to Little Rock, back to Little Rock, Mm -hmm. and I was... um, teaching and they had a weaving guild in Little Rock at that time and then and I had looms in a little house on Monroe Street. I had floor looms and lap looms and every kind of loom and I was doing craft fairs and then I got really bored with it. So I thought maybe I need to take a workshop or something that'll get me excited. So I went to Pennsylvania for a weavers conference and signed up for this workshop and the woman walked in the room and she said, well, I know you're all here to do weaving, but actually I'm pretty sick of it. So I moved to Denmark on, on a little island because I didn't want to weave anymore. She was chairman of Moore College in Pennsylvania. And she said, uh, now you have to remember, this is 1975 maybe. She said, so I was so sick of weaving that I started going to what I, essentially a yard sale in Denmark and buying old sheets and linens and things and making clothes. And I thought, oh, I think I just connected with that. I know how to do that. I know how to do that. I'm excited again. So I came back to Little Rock in the mid-70s and started going to yard sales, estate sales, buying pillowcases, doilies, everything, and started making clothing, sold all my looms. So I did that for about three years, did the old Montessori craft fair that some people remember. It was in Robinson Auditorium. And uh, a woman in Memphis, and I call her the woman with the James Bond name, Babby Lovett, Babby, uh, yep. Babby Lovett was over because she was always seeking out new artists and something exciting. And she had a eclectic store in Memphis. And then after she had the eclectic store, she had a very chic store with very designer types of clothing. And she still bought my stuff. But she uh, she came and I, I had taken a break from my little booth. And I came back and I said, what happened? And the person that was watching my booth said, we sold all your stuff. I said, to, to who? To Bab. <laughs> to Bab. To Babby, yeah. And uh, so uh, I caught up with her. She left her card, and I called her, and she said, I'd just like you to drive over to Memphis and talk to me about what you're doing. So I said, okay, I'll do that. 
So I went over to Memphis and um, I was in my 20s and um, went into her lovely office, which was so chic and stylish. And, you know, if you even look at my office today, it's an artist's office. It's got stuff piled up and it's everywhere. And uh, she looked at me and she said, "Um, have you ever heard of a store called Henry Bendel's in New York? I said, no. She said, well, you will. So fast forward from that, um, in about four or five years from that, I guess, I was in Henry Bendel's Christmas catalog with my clothing. And you were making these clothing out of sheets. At that point, I transitioned into using scraps because I was buying fabric by then, and I was using the scraps to make my signature mark garment, which was a kimono. So I was making things that you may have bought in my store, dress, shirt, and I'll say here, it's just so... Uh, it's kind of it's nostalgic and it's funny and it's comforting even in the museum store when people will walk in and some people won't know that I'm doing that and and I'll say uh hello they go look I'm wearing your dress today yes so many people like you are like me it's just like really are you it's crazy uh so but anyway when I was making those dresses those pants those shirts I had a I had big boxes full of the scraps uh, because I was always recycling in my life. My great-grandmother worked in the garment district in Decatur, Illinois, and when everybody went to visit and they wanted to get rid of me, she'd say, Connie Lee, go to the basement and dig in the scraps. So I did. <laughs> I was like six or something like that. And so but uh, so that's how curbside was a natural evolution. But, yeah, really. Um, I just thought, I can't, I can't throw these little pieces of synthetic, beautiful-looking silk or the real silk away. And so um, I thought, what do I, what do I love? Them? What is most about me? Issey Miyake in Japan. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a kimono. I'm going to make a kimono that's mine, the way I would make a kimono. And so that launched my career with Henry Bendel's. And, and it's lovely the way you use fabrics. So the front will be one fabric. The arms will be another fabric. Yeah. The back will be another. Sometimes even the front will have two different patterns on the front you know the top and the bottom mine does I have two of them that was my signature mark too of mixing things when people didn't do that and how I raised a child that always wants her shoes to match her dress and her shirt and everything I have no clue let's talk about that's what our children are like let's talk about your children okay we'll do it nobody probably this is what (laughs) makes you are a a true hippie I knew you when you were a true hippie and you were had your store above the run of the mill and we'll talk about that after the break but you also have have adopted two children you have Tell, tell everybody about your children. This this speaks volumes about Connie Fails. <laughs> oh, well, um, so the diagnosis for me was infertile. So I'm like, okay. Uh, but but I, not true. But not turned out to be not true. Um, that's what they say happens. So be careful when you go camping. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I thought, well, but I, you know, and so my friend who was a therapist who was, I, I mean, it's when people can't have a child and they really want to have a child, and I'm going to tell you what that really means in a second, um, it's, it's just heartbreaking, you know, and you've, you're trying to cope with it and figure out how to get, get over that or where do you go or what do you do. And finally, my, my friend, and I was paying her, I must pay you to help me with this deal, you know, and she got so frustrated and she stood up one day and she said this is our last session here's what I know this is your fertility doctor no this is my a therapist oh it's my good friend also okay Okay. and I said help me help me get over this and so she stood up and she said this is our last session and here's what I want to say to you what you really want to do is parent and I know you'll figure out how that got me so I went away and I thought yeah that's it and I don't have any bias about anything I don't 
choose color, ethnicity, race, gender. That wasn't on my plate. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go do an adoption. So um, then it was interesting to find out how hard it was to do adoption. Uh, I'm Jewish. So if you're Jewish, uh, you know, somebody on the other side doesn't want to give you something that you're going to raise like that. And then (sighs) I'm converted, although my family history was Jewish on my father's side, which doesn't count. Uh, So that didn't work out very well either. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to another country. So so at that point, Korea was doing a lot of adoptions. So I put my application in. It took more than a year. And in the meantime, um, I, Hillary was my friend already, and I said, I need you to write a letter of recommendation about what kind of parent you think I'll be. She says, okay. And then I said, she says, to who? And I told her where it was. She said, why aren't you adopting here in the States? And I said, oh, we can have a learning lesson on this one together. So you need to mm-hmm. you need to know where that is. So it's very our children were stuck in uh, foster care, DHS. They were just stuck because of reasons that couldn't get signed off on. So anyway, mm-hmm. I adopted Hannah, and mm-hmm. she arrived in Memphis as a fourteen month old, and I arrived in Memphis to pick her up as four months pregnant. Oh. <laughs> so new law with the adoption agency: you got to fess up if you got a bun in the oven. So oh. it's okay. So, uh, so, I, so Hannah arrived August 12th, and Noah arrived January 25th. I'll be darned. So, like, and then you didn't stop there? I didn't stop there. You decided to do it one more time. You adopted one more child. I did it one more time. And, and this is unbelievable that you did this. So my friend Susan, who was adopted in 1954, and we lovingly call her the dinosaur of Korean adoptees, uh, and we traveled a lot together. We traveled to India, to Romania, to do adoption work. And I said to her one time, I think I can do one more kid. She goes, okay. So she calls me one day and she said, FedEx is going to arrive at your doorstep today. First kid on the tape is yours. And I said, oh, great. FedEx arrives. I put the VHS in. I turn the television on. I hear Susan's voice and I see this little girl, black hair, silky hair. And Susan's voice is saying to the interpreter, tell her to put the cap on the pin. And the interpreter says in Thai. And the little girl doesn't look up. And then the little girl looks up. The interpreter's told her three or four times, put the cap on the pin. And the little girl looks up and goes, shaking her head side to side, no. And so they pan back and show a little girl with no arms. So she was putting the cap on the pin with her toes. So I called Susan and I said, she said, oh, great. Did you get the tape? I said, I did. (laughs) This is a story on me. I said, what made you think I wanted a kid with a disability? She said, oh, you must have missed her personality. And she hung up on me. Oh, wow. (laughs) So about four years after that, with a lot of legal work and stuff, uh, I flew to Thailand with my husband and we picked Kate up. And Kate is turned 31 in July. And you... What made you decide that you kept looking at the tape and thinking? Oh, my heart was there immediately. And partly I knew that um, culturally I'm not sure how it is if if life has moved forward. But in Thailand, the worst thing you can do, if you just want to tell somebody off, just take your shoe off and show them the bottom of your foot. Oh. And so I thought, this child has no chance. Because she has to do everything with her feet. She has to do everything. She literally eats with her feet. She's incredibly. uh, Well, she she drives a regular car with no special adaptations. This girl's unbelievable. She's tiny. She's about 4'9". She weighs about 70 pounds. Uh, quick story, if we have time for this. I was in Walmart one night with her, and we were talking to each other, and she doesn't pay attention. And this has just been like two years ago or something, a chat going on. And people will stare at Kate. Kate just really doesn't respond to it anymore. And so this uh, guy was standing there, and he kind of just kept staring, kept staring. I thought, okay, I'm going to make eye contact. I said, hey. He said, um, 
I said, did, did you have any questions? And he said, yes. He looked at Kate and he said, did I see you driving a car the other day? <laughs> <laughs> she said, yes. So I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, I love this girl. Kate I'm glad sealed. she's doing She lives yeah. in Little Rock. Where's she living? She is. She lives in Little Rock. Now you've gotten a brief portrait of both of our guests today, Anita Davis and Connie Fales. We'll be back after the break and start telling you about the impact they've had on the fashion and culture of our city. At flagandbanner.com, we share your anguish at the sights from Ukraine every night. Mothers and children in strollers fleeing their homeland and their brothers, husbands, and sons fighting to defend their unjustly attacked country. Displaying the Ukraine flag lets the world know your heart is with the Ukrainian people. Flagandbanner.com has lots of ways for you to display your allegiance to freedom, celebrate your patriotism, and show your colors. Log on and look through our website, flagandbanner.com. Arkansas's flagandbanner.com is more than just a flag store. Open six days a week. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Anita Davis, leading developer of South on Main in Little Rock, Arkansas, and curator of her very own SC Purse Museum with a private collection of over 3,000 purses. Now, that was in an article I read that was a few years old, so how many is it now? I'm not telling. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And, you know, if they weren't adorable purses, we'd call you a hoarder. Yes, that's true. And if they were all piled up to the ceiling, that could also be. But they're not. They're a clue. That would be. But they're. <laughs> so are they piled up to the ceiling? No. No oh, good. Um, before the break, we were talking about growing up in a small town and how it affected you and how you liked the community of a small town when every when all everybody else in Little Rock and the bigger cities were moving to the suburbs. Murfreesboro, Arkansas, was staying the same. So I thought you moved to Little Rock in 2004, but you said you'd been here for a while being an entrepreneur in the Heights area with Vagabonds. But now we're coming up on 2004, and um, you've become the driving force in the development of developing the whole south end of Maine, Bernice Garden, the Lincoln Building, the Sweden Cream Drive-In that's now the Root Cafe, and your Essie Purse Museum. The Bernice Building, where Boulevard and Moxie, Mm -hmm. uh, that was my very first building, and and I still own that one. And I sold uh, the Sweden Cream Building to Carrie and Jack. Oh, you uh, did? A year or two ago. I, I can't remember exactly. But after they got the wonderful grant... Uh, they really wanted to invest in that property, and it made sense to them to uh, buy the property. So, uh, and we really wanted to keep them in uh, the South Main area. So, Anita uh, Davis, can I just say I love you? <laughs> that was a very good thing for you to do with them. Well, they're they're just such a boon for our area. They're and great people. Yes. So yes. So I'll quit saying you own the Sweden Cream Drive-in where the Root Cafe is, but you did buy it, develop it, right, and for Root Cafe, and then they well, had recently. No, I didn't. It was before I even knew about them. It's sort of like you know you're pregnant with mm-hmm. <laughs> with something, but you don't know exactly what you're going to get, and mm-hmm. you're kind of getting the room already. So that's kind of the way it was. I've noticed that all entrepreneurs have that spiritual bent. You just you just described it perfectly. You're pregnant with these ideas. And you just have faith that if you keep, you know, growing your idea, it's going to all work out. Well, it's really interesting how that happens. And it's also interesting that if you kind of identify your philosophy, other people will will kind of 
pair up with you and understand that that's my philosophy too. I want to do that. And it's really just taking care of the land. And uh, uh, we want a walkable community so that uh, we don't have to rely on our cars so much. And uh, we want to uh, make it slow, the traffic slow down just a bit so that we can all walk and not be scared that we're going to be hit. And uh, then also, uh, it sort of makes us pay attention to the litter and the trash that's on the street so that it's not going down into the storm drains and ruining the Fush Creek. So there's all kinds of uh, opportunities there. And the garden is about having more dirt. You know, the dirt takes in the rain, and we don't have as much flood. And so we have beautiful little curb uh, knockouts in our area that are uh, actually planted with a lot of beautiful things. What do you mean ten- you have curb knockouts? Well, there are those things. At, uh, See, I know it's the radio. It's hard to visualize. I know. So, it, so it's along like, the curbs you have. Yes. Uh, it's where there is dirt, where you can grow things right there at, at the corners. Oh, the garden's all the way up to the edge. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And the, uh, the uh, Business Improvement District uh, takes care of that in our area. You've been called an accidental real estate developer. Yeah, it was accidental for sure. You know, I had dabbled in this and dabbled in that. And then I thought, you know, time is coming on and, and you you really could make a difference somehow. So I sort of had pinpointed a few things that seemed important to me. But how to do them was kind of the, the question. So that's kind of how it all, it seems like that it, it's been working my whole life towards something. And it's weird how that feels because uh, when I moved to Little Rock um, in the 80s, the late 80s, um, I, I was real fortunate to get to have a dream teacher, uh, Susan Sim Smith. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, so I, I really didn't have much influence about my own investigating my own self and so that was that was uh, kind of a first I didn't speak up I was in a group of women for a year before I would even speak and so I was a little you think I'm shy now mm-hmm. I do <laughs> so I was practically a mute, a mute. <laughs> yes and so anyway but uh it you know in the south it's kind of interesting when you are around women because uh there's a lot of competition sometimes but with this group I was safe and mm-hmm. so anyway so you started buying them in 2004 I believe and you bought all the way up till you started buying piecemealing and buying all the way up till you bought the SC Purse Museum in what year the building that it's in. Oh, uh, that was 2011. So in 2011, uh-huh, you uh-huh. bought the Essie Purse Museum. Was that the last building you bought? Yes. And how did that come about? Uh, well, um, I had a traveling exhibit that traveled the United States from 2006 to 2011. It started in Concord, Massachusetts, and it ended up in Seattle. And um, it went to a lot of history, small history museums in between, and it came to a ham here, Historic Arkansas Museum, and uh, Bill Worthen uh, rented it, and he rented it again because he said it was the best attended uh, special exhibit that they had. So uh, that gave me a clue that whenever it came back from this traveling exhibit that it might be a good idea to uh, plant it in the Soma area. 
So the name of that exhibit was The Purse and the Person, A Century of Women's Purses. Yes, that was right. And I've never known anybody that had a traveling exhibit ever. Do you get paid? To, do people pay you for your exhibit? No, you don't. Uh, you actually, uh, you have to pay the curators yourself. And then they, they it's an awful lot of work because uh, it, it is all packed up. It's identified correctly and it's uh shown uh, then they curate it and then they put it in a uh, semi-trailer truck and then they rent it in all these different places and so many of the exhibit companies have uh, went out of business that was between 2006 and 2011 so 2008 was really hard on that business why uh the the economy Oh, that's right, 2008, mm-hmm. the banking crisis. Right. So, uh, anyway, uh, I sort of knew that if I ever wanted to do anything with the purses, it would, be, it would give it good promotion, the, that collection. And so... Um, Tell me how you started collecting purses. Well, let's see. My mother was quite a, a, a fashionista. A clothes horse, and she loved to shop, and so I, I was an only child and dragged along past, you know, after her, and so I learned a lot about accessories and uh, shoes and purses and all that. How many closets did this woman have? Oh, or a room? She yeah, a room. yeah, she, yeah. And so anyway, um, so she started really collecting. Well, she just bought because she didn't like anything old necessarily. She just wanted new things. And I always, I, somehow I got the gene for liking old things. So well. <laughs> so anyway, I would go to the flea markets, but I recognized the quality that my mother taught me. So that's kind of, I guess. But, I, you know, when you go to a flea market and you see things that other people don't value, but you value, you get excited about it. And especially if it's not where you are expecting to find it why purses i don't know i don't know but what i do know is looking back (laughs) i was being taught when i moved here about the feminine and the divine feminine all in the you know susan was really teaching me all this stuff and so and then i was learning how to interact with women in a healthy way you know and so then i realized that i was collecting a container for the feminine but I had no idea that any of that was really, I mean, this sounds so kind of crazy, but it's the truth, and it's kind of the way it happened. So The divine feminine. Mm-hmm. Is that a phrase that yes. can be Googled? Yes. So I think we should put that on the website, the divine feminine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it led you to where you are today. I've heard you call this end of South Maine the feminine area of Little Rock. Yes, because I feel like it's a kind of, a uh, warm and friendly place and um, it is something that has this whole area has suffered and I feel like it is a part that uh, really is in need of nurturing and a, a, a woman is a nurturer by usually so can't help it we can't help it nope if it's broken we'll fix it try to anyway we'll try to <laughs> So you've, um, you've, you've, the Root Cafe is renovated, and they're in at the corner of Maine and 15th or 16th? Or where 15, is it? Uh, 15 Maine. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. 15th and Maine. And now you've decided to buy the building right next door because you're the person, and the person, a century old women's persons, your traveling exhibit has done so well, you think, 
there's a need for this and you put it in and we have to say the huffington post once you did put it in included it in their list of the world's hottest museums in 2014 yeah that was exciting you were right because they i mean that's no that's nothing to sneeze about so you decided to buy this building and start working on it in 2011 tell us about that well uh it was stage works and john cook was ready to uh he he really could do his work not on main street necessarily and he was willing to sell his building and he rented back from me for about a, month, a year because I wasn't quite ready to go after that building to redo it. Tackle and, the renovation. Yes. So, um, and then we opened in 2013, so in July. What's, what do you think? So it's the Divine Feminine. And was that just your driving goal, or was it a driving goal to do something with your collection so that you could display it, or what do you think the driving um, goal was that made it come together? Um, I think sharing it was uh, important because women are not, there's not another women's history museum, and basically that's what it is. And women, uh, it, it's such a, a timely manner. We uh, need to celebrate ourselves and honor ourselves. And so that's what this building is about. We are showing uh, the challenges that women have had throughout the time. We show uh, history decade by decade, and we have not through 1900 to 19, uh, 2000. And so we show purses, what might have been in the purses, photographs of women holding their purses, mm. and then a brief history. So you can see in the case where the teens is, is World War One, and it's a very drab, somber time, and the purses reflect that. Mm-hmm. And then in the 20s, it's more fun, and people are wearing makeup, and so there's makeup in the purses mm-hmm. and uh, s- smoking accessories. and My favorite. Yeah, all kinds of fabulous things. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, 30s also was, it was kind of trying. But, but women... You know, we we ha- I went to Washington D.C. not two well two or three years ago, and uh, there were all kinds of of uh, statues and sculptures and everything all about men. It was as if women. I didn't see very many women uh, things that honored women. I don't. I've never thought about that. <laughs> well, I took the, the tour. Not even up there. <laughs> I took the tour. You know, the the thing with that you can go through the little trolley and and even the uh, person that was giving us the story, the history of our nation, left out women. Well, they we we did play a small role. We did. Uh, we were the hostess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do love doing that. I must say, that is nice to be the hostess. But, yeah, I think we've done more than that. Yeah. But I have to say, prior to birth control, which you and I remember. Yes. It was hard for us to do a lot. Yes, of course. I mean, but once birth control happened in the 60s, women's lives changed dramatically. But let me tell you this. I, uh, people uh, donate to our museum uh, a their grandmother's purses or their and then uh, when they come and they tell us the stories there there was a woman who was an artist and she uh, her daughter she had just died and her daughter brought these three fabulous purses in and she was telling me about her mother's life and that she 
paid her own way to uh, school in Denton, Texas, and then she uh, she got her her uh, she graduated and she wanted to buy a car and she couldn't buy a car so she had to move back and be with, you know get her dad to buy her car but she paid for it and so she, I mean she just moved right mm-hmm. on it was as if she didn't have a lot of hurdles mm-hmm. and then another woman brought her mom's uh her great great grandmother's things and her grandmother whatever however she was related mm-hmm. uh learned to, she was born in the 20s and she learned to fly an airplane and she had her own airplane and this is arkansas people you yeah know? and, so, and then there's Catherine hefburn there were a lot of women <laughs> who really were right you know progressive right tell us who, what your favorite purse is I love a purse that's black flannel, and it has a great big um, safety pin. It's like this big for the handle. And y'all, that's, and a, that's 12 inches, y'all. She's holding up 12 inches. <laughs> <laughs> it's the radio. It's this big. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's how wide? Two feet wide with a 12-inch safety pin on the front well it's not really two feet wide it's sort of deep uh-huh oh it's deep uh-huh. Uh-huh. and it looks like um a diaper. audrey hepburn would have carried it it's oh. very beautiful and um elegant i love the plastic purses yeah, that snap too. at the top uh-huh. that i guess are probably the 40s yes but they don't carry enough today because today you almost need a briefcase right or a backpack to carry all the stuff you want to carry and i find that very disheartening because I want to put a purse on with my mm-hmm. outfit, and you almost have to have a purse inside of a purse. Right. We, you can weigh your purse at Essie, and then you are admonished if it's real heavy. <laughs> but <Is> that true? <laughs> That's funny. Because you hurt your back. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do you carry a lot of different purses, or do you like everybody else? The I'm, so, I'm very much like everybody else, because uh, I have so many purses, and but occasionally um, in the store there'll be one that I think, I have to wear this one, I just love this one. But before I opened, I'd carried the same, uh, let's see, shoulder bag, I guess it was, uh, for about 10 years. How, how, what, when, when is a bag too heavy? What's the weight that I you... I can't remember. That you would say. Okay. What's the word Essie? I looked up the word Essie for Essie purse. Uh-huh. I thought maybe it was your mother's name. No, no. It, it means to be in Latin, and a woman's purse holds who she is, um, her essence. You can uh, smell a woman's purse. I mean, like, you, if you remember what your mom's purse smelled like. Mine mm-hmm. was tea rose. My mother's purse was tea rose. You can just remember uh, her essence, and so a, a woman's purse is really important as well, far as holding lovely. her identity. I hope you haven't forgotten that we've got another guest on today's program. Connie Fails, definitely a major contributor to the fashion of Little Rock, Arkansas. Let's revisit some of the interview with Connie Fails. I love talking to you, Connie. You're just a <laughs> remarkable woman. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Connie Fails and her remarkable life. She's the clothing designer. She, and she was a clothing designer. I guess you're once a clothing designer, always a clothing designer. She's the manager of the Clinton Museum store. We'll ask her about her honor and the pressure of designing an inaugural outfit for the First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. 
During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, starting from door-to-door sales, then telemarketing, to mail order and catalog sales. And now, FlagandBanner.com relies heavily on the internet and live chats with customers all over the world. Over this time, Carrie's business and leadership knowledge has grown. As early as 2004, she began sharing her knowledge in her weekly blog. In 2009, she founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom. Today, she has branched out into podcasts, Facebook live stream, and YouTube videos of this radio show. Each week, you'll hear candid conversations between her and her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting and inspiring. Stay up to date by joining flagandbanner.com's mailing list. You'll receive our Water Cooler Weekly e-blast that notifies you of our upcoming guests, happenings at Dreamland Ballroom, sales at flagandbanner.com, access to Brave Magazine articles, and Carrie's current blog post. All that in one weekly email. Or you may simply like flagandbanner.com's Facebook page for timely notifications. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Connie Fales, manager of the Clinton Museum Store and director of Curbside Couture, a fashion design competition in Little Rock, Arkansas. So, Connie Fales Clothing Store. When I met you, you were above run-of-the-mill. I bought a slip, I think, that was probably made out of a sheet, mm-hmm. uh, and it had trim on it that probably came from a pillowcase, and... Um, uh, then you decided you were you decided to move down the street. So tell us about how you start for all the entrepreneurs listening out here. So how did you decide to start that business there? Where'd you get the money to do it? And then how did you get that leap of faith to move down the street and open up your own store? Yeah, it was a leap of faith for surely there was. Um, and it was the mid seventies. And uh, I worked for a brokerage firm. I was totally inappropriate for a brokerage yeah, firm. Yeah, I read that in your bio. I was like a stockbroker in the 70s. That's just, you should have hung in there because the 80s were great. You'd be rich right now, girl. That was worse. I was really the mean person in the back that did the margin calls. So if your account was uh, below what we needed, I'm the one who gave the notice to you. I needed a check for $20,000 or something. So I wasn't very popular. And I just didn't, I wasn't able to use my creativity. I used it at night and on the weekends. Uh, I had just met the person that would become my husband, Leslie Singer, and he was uh, all for. He said, "Let's just uh, let's we just got to try it." And the woman who was teaching that workshop in uh, Pennsylvania came to visit a year after I did the workshop, and she walked in to, and I said, "Well, I'm not weaving anymore. Here's what I'm doing." And she looked at me. And she said, "Quit your day job." Oh, and so that started the conversation between Leslie and I. We were not married at that time. Could I just take that leap of faith? And it was Arkansas, and women dressed, uh, didn't dress like I was doing. Nobody dressed like you were doing. And George Worthen had enough faith in me that he gave me a $4,000 loan. and Signature loan, probably. Mm-hmm. Back uh-huh. in the good old days. Yes, and I got those for a long time. And uh, I just, so the reason the Hillary thing came up is that I had opened my store in um, August, and Is this the one above the run above of the run mill? of the mill? Okay. And in December, I had a little trunk show. It's the first time I'd ever done that of some jewelry. And uh, the guy didn't want to take the jewelry home at night, so it stayed. It was uh, it was like uh, Chinese silver, so it wasn't like gems or anything like that. And that night, I don't know if it's I, I don't. We have no clue. We never found out how it happened. But someone broke in and arsoned the building. So I was standing out front of the building with the fireman. The my whole upstairs was just charred and burned, and run of the mill below had all of the water damage and some burn damage and everything. So I was standing outside with the fireman discussing. 
and the postman came and he had a little tiny envelope and I thought that's weird what is that looks like an invitation to a baby shower or something I don't know anybody <laughs> having a baby so I'm standing there and I opened it up and it said uh dear Connie you might recognize me if you saw me but you may not know my name my name but my husband has just been elected governor my name is Hillary Rodham and I'd like you to make my gown so there's you've never even met her yet she'd been in the shop she said I come to your shop and bring people from out of town because I love them to see your store Wow. So uh, so I actually had a woman who had a sewing business in an old mail truck, a big mail truck. And her name was Alora. She was from Ola, Arkansas. And she had been coming around my studio saying, I'll help you sew a little bit. And I said, I could use that, you know. She just pulled her truck right up to the front door and sew out of the back of it? Yeah. yeah. Well, she would come into my store some, but she had her thing all set up as this great studio. And unlike me, she's totally organized with everything folded and pins put away and everything. Right. So now I didn't have a place to do that, and I needed to make Hillary's gown. So Alora pulled her mail truck into my driveway on Monroe Street down by War Memorial. We got a big, long extension cord and plugged her into the house, and we did the first the first gown for the, it's at the old state house now. Anybody doesn't think business is creative is crazy. We hear those yeah. kind of stories all the time that's very ingenious. do what you got to do very ingenious yeah. yeah and so you made her first gown out of a sewing machine out of the back of this woman's mail truck yes <laughs> that was it you just can't make that stuff up if i write them if i write <laughs> two them wild back. girls i mean it all worked out you know <laughs> and so now it's on display at the old state house it is so you did when did you decide so did you decide to move down the street when the old mills house burned and your place burned or is that what no, it got, we restored it, and, but uh, the person who owned Run of the Mill wanted more room for the business she was doing, and I actually needed more room, and I wanted, by that time I was ready to have a storefront right on the street. And so I found the little building that was up by Hocott's, and Mr. Hocott still owned it, and uh, it was actually three different sections of building, so I, got the, I rented the first section, and after about five years I took over the second section, and then eventually took over the third section, so I had the whole building. At the time, yeah. Um, did you were you had a seamstress there that was sewing on site at that time? So I had a cutter, someone that did nothing but cut things from my, the patterns that I designed and made, and then I had anywhere from I had two fabulous ruby and rose sewers that sewed for me forever, and occasionally I would have a third sewer. It would depend on seasonally how busy that we were. Mm-hmm. So they, I would design things, they would get cut, they would get made, then they would just come over into the retail store, be priced, and people like you would come in and buy them. And then you not just you didn't just sell your designs. You right. also went to market. And I have to say, your eye for buying fashion was dead on. Thank S- you. You're welcome. I still have some of those pieces. Can't put my big toe in them, but I think they're <laughs> darling, and I keep them. I understand that too. Uh, but I did. I I do have an intuitively good eye about things, mm-hmm. uh, about buying things. About um, I got the best compliment. And I was standing there and didn't know I was going to get it from Scott McGee uh, at a Christmas party. And he was introducing me to somebody who had just moved to town. And he said, you, you don't know who this woman is. He said, but she had, she had the guts to do the first boutique in Little Rock. I thought, is that true? wow, that is so nice. Well, nobody did what I did. Nobody sewed. Nobody had that kind of bohemian boutique. No, they didn't. That took a risk. And it was kind of, in, in retrospect, if you look, my store was right between, my store was the last store before you went to the Heights. So mm-hmm. it was, it was nested right between Hillcrest and the Heights, which were so kind of yin and yang with each other yep. too, and what people's tastes were and how people lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. That's mm-hmm. a great spot, wasn't it? Yeah. There was the phone booth up in the Heights. But they there was. Uh, yeah. But they didn't do any, um, like you said, they didn't do any 
uh, sewing or right. It was a it was a type of boutique, but it was nothing like yours. No, yeah, that was Bliss Thomas. Bliss, that's and right. uh, yeah, no one else did that because um, I don't know. Either maybe you had a your mom had a sewer that did alterations or something, but nobody. Took, well, everybody sewed back then. Yeah, but and no one took the risk to just go off and think that. Um, well, I don't know that that kind of very different. Very different. Not structured, you know, sewed your jackets Mm -hmm. on the outside instead of the inside or, you know. So it's 12 years later and Bill Clinton has been asked to, has been made the president of the United States Mm -hmm. and you get to design another outfit that's going to be on the world stage. What an honor. How did that come about? Well, you can imagine it was a big conversation. Friends and family and stuff were saying, oh, maybe you'll get to do it again. I said, no, she's the first lady of the United States. It's going to be Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I should have, and that, and I thought, are you not listening to your little voice about Hillary? Uh, because she always supports artists. She's always supporting Arkansans. And the next exhibit at the library, which we might have one line about soon, is in 1993, she did the first ever craft, American craft exhibit. So she had craftsmen from all the United States. So anyway, one day she called and she said, um, so, um, so-and-so, and I would like to come by and talk to you for a few minutes. This is after he'd been elected. And I said, okay, that's great. I look forward to seeing you. I haven't seen you since the election and all that kind of stuff. And they come in, and the person with her is a whole lot younger, and uh, it's kind of is an aide. And I can tell she's not, she's not like in the conversation very much, too much. And so Hillary said, well, I'm going to ask you if you would uh, do my clothing for the inaugural. I said, like your clothing, clothing for the inaugural? <laughs> and she said, yes. She said, well, you know, I have to do a lot of different things on several days. So there will be like five or six outfits a day. There will be the inaugural suit. Probably need a coat. I said, you don't like the cold. You probably need a hat. She said, yeah, that sounds good. Did she you says, do that blue hat and blue pantsuit? <laughs> it's not a pantsuit. She didn't have pantsuit on. She had a, she had a suit on. So she had a rose colored with a blue fleck in it suit. It was a a straight skirt and a, a jacket and a shirt underneath it. So I didn't realize that I chose a fabric before it became popular, that little Tweety fabric with the little square that everybody had a suit out of and then everybody gave them to Goodwill because they, they were so, you know. But at that point, no one had that fabric. So we did that, and then we did the blue coat, and then I took a lot of flack for the hat because people didn't like the hat. I loved it. I love the hat. I thought I, it was I great. I remember. It's and the only thing hat, I remember she wore. The hat ended up having its own great story because of the girl who did the hat in New York. I sent her the swatch of the fabric, and I asked her to do the hat, and she showed me the styles, and I said, this, take this down a little bit, make this a little bit like this, and we got through it all. And um, years later, I was at market, and I mean years later, like 15 years after that, and I was at market, and I heard someone say, Connie, Connie. I'm like, okay. And I turned around. It was this woman that I'd noticed earlier that had this incredible big-brimmed hat on. It was summer, and a little black and white polka dot skirt and a little white shirt. And I thought, wow, that woman looks really good. And I turned around, and she says, it's me. It's Darcy. I made the hat. Oh my my God. She said, the hat changed my life. She said, this guy who was a big hat maker called me after that. And she said, I ended up marrying him. I live on Martha's Vineyard. (laughs) What a good Oh, you got fairy dust all over you, girl. (laughs) That's good. That is good. Yeah, so lots of stuff, good stuff came out of the blue hat. Was it uh, nerve wracking to know that you're going to be on the world stage like that and be looked at so hard? Or did you ever think about it? Did you you have those nights at night? You're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Yeah, well, 
Yes, because the night that Air Force One, they were going to take off the next day, I told my sewers, I said, you know, we have to finish everything. This is it. We got, we're done. However, we have to stay here. So remember, 1992, there's no cell phones. And so we're all sewing and people's husbands are calling saying, yeah, we're still here. We're still here. We're safe. Yeah, we're okay. It's late, but we're safe. And so uh, finally the phone rang in the store and I answered it. And uh, it was my husband. And he said, the president just called me. He's concerned about you. And I said, we're just about to make the delivery. And it was 2.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so I drove everything over to the governor's mansion and I, I always call him President Clinton. I don't call him Bill. Right. And President Clinton came out. And he said, wow, he said, I had Secret Service out going all over the grounds. I thought maybe, I don't know, you got lost or something out here in the dark. <laughs> I said, no, sir, I'm fine. I said, I just need to unload these clothes. Down to the Get wire. Get out of here. Down to the wire. Yeah, it's great. So, but it's like that thing. I, Of course, my son's a big cyclist, the birth baby in between the girls. And we watch the Tour de France all the time. But mm-hmm. I look at it like if I, I never really, I want at one time, I thought I wanted to go to the tour, but I miss everything. If I go to the tour, I'm just standing in one spot for three seconds when the riders go by. That's so right. kind of going to the inaugural, it was later when I watched the reruns of the whole thing, I could kind of see the scope of everything. Because I just saw a Gertrude Stein um, quote that I love. It says, we're always the same age inside. Yeah. And so I'm always the same person. I'm just... In that we and I were talking about being in the moment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I was in the moment so much as I was in my kids say La La Land, uh, and that's why my grandchildren call me La La. But um, <laughs> you know, you're just there, and it is wonderful and magnificent at that you're like the second row or the first row, and you're watching the president be, being sworn in. But then later, you hear Peter Jennings or somebody saying your name when you watch the tape, and I go, "Really? <laughs> that's kind of fun. That's good. Oh, it's so good." Before we wrap up the show today, one final word from Anita Davis and Connie Fails. Here's Anita. I live in the same house that I've lived in for 30 years. Oh. Yeah, and I, I love my house, but I, I'm, I'm not as social as... Um, You're shy. You are shy. I, well, I'm an introvert, basically. Okay. So that kind of helps me to have enough time to kind of keep myself sane. Right. <laughs> Right. You need to get away from it. So uh-huh. if, if, if you were going to tell yourself of 20 years ago something, what would it be? Figure out who you are. And finally, a gift for Connie Fails. Connie, I have a gift for you. So I know you either just got back from the beach or going to the beach. We just got back. Well, that's too bad. Um, it's a beach towel that says flagandbanner.com on oh, it. You know what? We love beach towels at our I house. We use them for in the shower and bath rather than a towel towel. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. Thank, you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You have just been. Oh, it's been a joy. Thank you. You're great. Thank you. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 